Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa. So sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I dot com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is me checking the mic. Do you know how many uh, roadies it takes to change a uh, to change a light bulb? One, two, one, two. Hey, one, two. There it is. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Uh, so we are all in the studio here today with Nick Capodice. Hey, Sam. Co-host of Civics 101, one of NHPR's other podcasts. <laughs> uh, and also Justine Paradise. Yeah, I'm right here. And executive producer Erica Janik. Hi there. And Taylor, who is, uh, you know. Dude, you, are you just going to not give me a title? <laughs> <laughs> and Taylor Quimby. <laughs> Taylor, that's fine. Taylor's still here. So, Nick, uh, we're here because we have been vigorously debating a question that that you presented to us at one point. Yeah, it's a question that I've had that my friends and I have debated for about 20 to 25 years. It's like every time you come together, the friendship just picks up where it left off. It's just arguing. if it's late enough in the night and somebody throws this question out, then we just do it, you know. Okay. So the question is this. Before planes, before cars, what is the fastest that a human being could go. Trains? trains? Before trains. Before <laughs> engines? Before engines. Before all the fast stuff happened. Before we got real fast. What was the fastest a human being went? What was the situation? Now, there's some rules. We're not counting falling. You can't count falling? You can't count falling. If you just oh. fall off a cliff. <laughs> so that's, the, that's pretty much the only rules. No falling. Horses? Horses can count. I'll go with horses counting. The things I'm thinking about are faster than a horse. Oh. So, so no falling and no uh, advanced mechanical Internal movement. combustion. Yeah, you got it. What if you were eaten 
by a tiger, and then the tiger was running. Would that count? Do you have to be alive to to be moving fast? I think that consciousness is an important part (laughs) of existence. Can it be multiple people working together to move fast? It certainly can. Today on Outside In, we are taking this long-time thought experiment and putting it to the test. How fast was the fastest person before fast technology? First, we're going to toss around some ideas, see if we can't make some educated guesses, and then we'll split up the research and present our findings. Can I, should I say my hypothesis? Okay, what well, we got? I'm going to write these down. So my hypothesis is the Nantucket sleigh ride. What's the Nantucket sleigh ride? Yeah, what's that? When you harpoon a whale, and then your whaling <laughs> ship is tugged along in a vast speed by uh, one of these beautiful leviathans of the deep. That's uh, my argument. Is that's the hu- fastest a human went? Well, All how right. fast the whales? I'm go? like from Nant. I have to research this <laughs> from Nantucket. <laughs> I bet it's when the sperm whale dove down when it was when it was trying to get rid of the <gasps> the whaling harpoon ship by like going into the deep and i bet the fastest they were going was when they were going down and drowning when they sounded yeah yeah i never thought about that but you mentioned something that makes me think that um you said sleigh ride and i think snow has enabled people to go very fast over the course of history and so i would be curious to investigate how fast people have used either skis skates um sleds I bet people hit some real top speeds that way. I don't know, though, because, because like, if you look at early skis, they were not speedy. Olympic skiers go, what, 80, 90 miles an hour? Yeah. But that's on, like, a prepared surface. Old school skiing, they were going through, like, deep snow. Okay, fine. But do you think whales go faster than... Well, I don't know how fast a whale goes. I think a whale goes faster than a horse. What about an ostrich? That's immediately what I thought. <laughs> Someone riding an ostrich. Swiss Family Robinson. But then I also asked about many people working together because I wondered about Polynesians in boats rowing together. Boats go fast. Yeah. Team rowing. Yeah. <laughs> is the supposition that, that like team rowing is going to be the fastest boat? I feel like it would be. Yeah. Unass- I mean, unassisted by chemistry. I would think a small sailboat with a powerful sail could get you going faster than a big boat. Some of the fastest like hydrofoils now, what what do they go? Like 60 miles an hour? They move. They're crazy. I would also count swinging as locomotion. Swinging. Yeah, so you don't have to discount falling just because if you're holding on to something, if you're tethered by something. That feels like falling to me. Like someone must have made a massive swing a very long because falling ago. would be specific was it specific gravity like the fastest that a, a, a mass can fall like it gets to a certain point with like air resistance terminal there, velocity terminal velocity there's a term for that so <laughs> swinging would not reach terminal velocity no but but even so just like if you just have a long rope and a tall thing and jump off holding it that's basically falling and then the swing stops you before you before you hit terminal velocity. Yes, but st- but like you got to be going faster than a whale. I don't know. Nick says no. All right, if sw- if you say swings are allowed, my friend, <laughs> I'm I'm letting swings in. All right. Also, I don't know if anyone's ever been flung out <laughs> flung out of a catapult, but that's one that maybe you should consider. Maybe you uh, should consider a catapult. Indeed. Or a trebuchet, <laughs> which is much better than a catapult. Well, in that case, can we also include other sorts of purposeful falling, like being shot out of a cannon or going down a Niagara Falls in a barrel? If you can find evidence that someone was ever actually shot out of a cannon <laughs> that survived before circuses, I think you should just, you know, shun the technology as opposed to 
The spirit of the question. The spirit of the question. Thank you. We can't get bogged down in the, the letter of the law. <laughs> I just, I just, isn't this exactly what happens during your conversations yeah. <laughs> as you get bogged down in the letter of the law? Because, because no. you know, technology is so can so cannons, for example. Taylor, my point is is that no one is ever actually shot out of a cannon. <laughs> in the circus, okay, in the circus, I thought it was like a springboard that they like. Oh, really? So it's, it's not really, they're not really firing a cannon. Oh, really? You'd die. You'd be burned to death. Well, but like maybe, I don't know. I don't know what I thought was happening. <laughs> okay. All right. Investigate. Okay. I'm ready. Are you all ready? I'm ready. My will. Okay. So, uh, everyone's done their research? Yes. Yeah. I think that we should start with mine because I'm the host. No, because. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Power hungry. I think we should start with horses because they are obviously and demonstrably very fast uh, and we definitely rode them. Seems like you got to beat horses. If you can't beat horses, then, then you're nothing. That seems fair. Do we still have the same horses around that we had back in the day? Ooh. Interesting question, Justine. So I, to figure this out, I called a, a uh, an archaeologist named Sandra Olson. She's with the University of Kansas. She has spent her entire life studying uh, what is believed to be the first domestication of horses, uh, which was? Right. So the Bataille culture dates to around 5,500 years ago, and it's located in north-central Kazakhstan. So that's when we first domesticated horses, 5,500 years ago. They have a veritable boatload of archaeological evidence showing that this is the earliest known site. There are leather tack. There are huge amounts of horse bones and middens. There's manure in the roofing materials. There's remains of fences. And of course, mare's milk in pottery. Nobody would, in their right mind, would milk a wild mare because, you know, the wild horses were probably quite a lot to uh, contend with. Good way to get kicked in the head. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, 5,500 years ago, Justine's question is the apt one. Is this the same horse? Now, I don't think we have to actually limit ourselves to the Bataille horse because obviously people started breeding horses for speed and we had faster horses much before the steam engine. However, even if we stick with just the Bataille horse, they were pretty darn fast. You know, this has really got me thinking. (laughs) Uh, So based on the size of the animal, I would say uh, certainly they weren't the fastest horse compared to modern day uh, breeds, but they were about the size of a quarter horse, which, um, of course, quarter horses are a little more gracile, a little more delicate, and uh, they are known for their speed. Uh, They can go about 55 miles per hour in short sprints. Now, these horses, I think, would have been more durable. They would have been slower, uh, maybe 45 to 50 miles an hour, but able to just keep going forever. Wow. That's fast. That is fast. I should have just Googled how fast does a horse go. <laughs> <laughs> Episode over. <laughs> no, no, no. I, but I think, I, I think they're beatable. Oh, thank goodness, because I, w- I would be very sad if, like, horses were. There it is, horses. Did she describe them as gracile? Gracile, graceful. Oh. Long, long of le- leggy. I thought Long it meant like grassy in the meadows. Me too. <laughs> I'm glad I asked because I was just like, what? <laughs> but, and, and I've got one last clip that this might get cut entirely, but I just like it so much so you guys get to hear it. But I've seen some pretty remarkable things um, at Kazakh horse races. Of course, this is with a saddle, but they will ride at full gallop and the rider will go past his body underneath the belly of the horse and back up. 
uh, at full gallop. I don't know how that works. I've seen it, and it's surprising to me. <laughs> the Comanches did that, too. Like, there's yeah. stories of, like, the Native American col- riding cultures shooting from underneath the belly of the horse using the horse as a shield. It's, yeah, Incredible. I believe that. Can I just go back and ask, why was there poop on the roofs? What were they doing? Just tossing it up there? Like, ah, his poop is on the streets. Throw it on the roof. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. I feel like it would when be a good, like, insulator, like, holding things together. She did say insulation. And, and, yeah. But, but then as Taylor asked the question, I was like, really? <laughs> it's basically just grass. Okay. Well, so so that's that's <laughs> that's the mark to beat, isn't it? The mark to beat. Horses. Who's next? Oh, it's me. Oh, Justine, you got to help me out. So, Nick. Yeah. Your theory was the Nantucket sleigh ride. Yeah, when a whale is made fast to a whaling boat, and then the whale sounds, dives below, and then it scoots off and drags the whale ship behind it. I thought that was the fastest. All right. So the Nantucket sleigh ride. People have been whaling for a long time. Um, It is not just Nantucket and New Bedford. They also is Japan and across the Arctic Circle and the Bosque since prehistoric times. But we are going to focus on Yankee whaling here because this specific sleigh ride did come from Yankee whaling. So in the between the 1600s and the end of the, the 19th century, uh, Japanese traditional whaling used nets and surrounding and herding the whales and like Bosques hunted right whales and, and bowhead whales, which are both slow. So <laughs> the Yankee whalers hunted sperm whales. And that's what sperm whales sound like. <laughs> the, those those clicks are so loud that they can paralyze your hand if you're in the water. It's it, they're like one of the loudest animals on earth. So anyway, what just the, like the vibrations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, wow. So the whale ships, uh, many of them out of Nantucket, um, but. Since the Nantucket Whaling Museum was closed this month, I had to call the New Bedford Whaling Museum. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Dyer, he's the curator of maritime history uh, at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. And I think I actually interrupted him in the middle of a train of thought when I called him. How do you do, Justine? I'm well. How are you? Well, I'm trying to figure out who built the Russo and when. The Russo's a whale ship. He was all despondent (laughs) about it. (laughs) Hey, we all have our jobs to do. (laughs) Um, And I was like, well, it must be kind of hard fact-checking something that happened, you know, centuries ago. Well, you know, it, it, it isn't, uh, when it, especially when it comes to American maritime history and whaling history, is absolutely an, an extraordinarily well-documented. We could tell you the eye color of the people who sailed on any given ship out of New Bedford in the 1840s. So I was like, well, you'll absolutely be able to help me figure out how fast the Nantucket sleigh ride was. Well, yes and no, because one of the you know, real... <laughs> tough bits about that is the amount of disinformation, misinformation, disagreement, uh, conversation that took place among whalemen as to exactly how fast they were going. I imagine that like a whale ship had to be like a really bro-y environment, don't you think? <laughs> like, if fishermen exaggerate, right. then whalers must like really, really exaggerate. <laughs> Certainly. Um, so, but... Happily, the New Bedford Whaling Museum is like thousands of logbooks kept on ships and other primary materials in their archives. And uh, so there's like a canon of like a dozen or so like whaling documents. And one of them was written in 1874 by William Morris Davis. It's a book called Nimrod of the Sea. And in this book, he says that sperm whales could go for a very short spurt. A sperm whale could tow a whaleboat at about 20, 20 or 25 miles an hour. But the things this this short spurt thing is really important because sperm whales are sprinters, and 
there's this other government document that Mike pulled out, the Fisheries and the Fishery Industries of the United States, published in 1887. And they're kind of doubtful of this 20 to 25 miles number. They write in here, 20 or 25 miles per hour is rather a high estimate of the speed of a whale. So, Nick, are you ready for this? I'm about to really let you down. I, I can't go any lower, but that's <laughs> he's, he's been His eyes have been cringing. And, they have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So th- this next part, he says in this same document, it's written that a sperm whale could do, could do this. Sperm whales have been known to run out 300 fathoms of line in four minutes. 300 fathoms, 1,800 feet. So you can actually calculate this out. It was figured that six, I say six to ten miles per hour, sort of was a was a Nantucket sleigh ride. That's so slow. Just go. Don't don't keep going. And actually, actually, you calculate it out, and it actually goes to like five point six six miles an hour. So six to ten miles is even generous. I can walk that quickly. But. Mike did throw a caveat. But the, uh, the, uh, the big unknown here is the fin whale, and that is a big unknown. So the fin whale was not really hunted in Yankee Willing usually because it's open ocean. It's an open ocean creature. It doesn't school the same way sperm whales do, and it's very, very fast. Ooh, sounds fast. <laughs> so he says... Every once in a while, a Yankee whaleman would get fast to a fin whale... And those things, those things can swim, you know, at 50 miles an hour. 50 miles an hour. <laughs> as fast as a horse. Tied. Yeah, tied. Fast to a fin whale. I could not find any other corroboration of this, by the way. The fin whale, I think this is a stretch. I think that what's cool about a fin whale is it can cruise around 20 or 23 miles an hour, and it can sprint up to 30 or so. So we're going to we're gonna have to fact check this, and we might have to cut this. Um, but... um. Well, we don't have to cut it. We can just say, like, we can leave it as a tantalizing thing that is completely uncorroborated. And uh, all right, because look at Nick's face when you say that. I know, that. <laughs> no, but it's okay. It's okay. Did you guys know that intrepid Yankee whalers would go below the belly of a whale during a whale hunt and then back to the top again <laughs> and what? shoot from he's underneath? Just <laughs> So I would say I, I would say that the Nantucket sleigh ride is um, has been defeated in in my opinion. I I it did much better than I thought though. The fin whale twist, you know, I was not expecting the fin whale twist. Yeah, all the kids are doing the fin whale twist. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next? Boats. Boats. So I just want to say I, the boats is probably not going to win, but I think that I can impress you. So first, the Polynesians, 2,000 years ago, explorers from Samoa, Fiji, Tonga, they set out to explore 10 million square miles of ocean in canoes with twin hulls, outriggers, and full sails. They were great navigators. Captain Cook, great explorer, traveled around the world. He estimated that a Tongan canoe could sail three miles to our two. Captain Cook was the one who popularized calling them canoes as a way to trivialize them. (gasps) It is true. Why, why would that trivialize it? Because it's, oh, it's just a canoe. It's just a canoe. <laughs> when when like you see these things and they're huge and like yeah. two dozen people are sleeping on them. So warthogs in the Polynesian Islands are called Captain Cookers. And I think that's fit. That's an apt <laughs> ending to a man yeah. who did such horrible things. It's a things. sick burn. Yeah. So then on the other side of the world, or around the same time, um, if you're in Europe and you spotted some ships on the horizon in the 800s or 900s, They were probably Viking ships. And, you know, if you're just a regular monk, you know, you're just illuminating some manuscripts. (laughs) You see a ship on the horizon and you're like, 
that looks dangerous, but I know I've got a couple hours because, you know, that ship has to drop anchor, then they're going to row to shore or they have to find a harbor. But if it is, in fact, a Viking ship, that is not true. Their ship technology was better than much anyone else in Europe. So they could go places no one else could go. And there's two reasons for that. One is the ships could sail very close to the wind, so they could sail more into the wind than other ships, allowing them to go places even if the wind was not favorable. And the other thing is they had very, very shallow drafts, so they could sail even though the water was not very deep, which meant that these warships could sail very far upriver and and make raids where they were completely unexpected. And they didn't need a, a pier or a dock or anything else. You could just sail it up onto a sandy beach, jump off the bow, and you'd, they'd be ready to fight. So you wouldn't even have time to finish a, a cherub on your illuminated <laughs> manuscript. Yeah. Oh. The letter O. <laughs> so that was Dr. Bill Short. He's the author of several books on Vikings, and he has a specialty in Viking combat. So the Viking ships are moving really fast in these special boats that can go basically anywhere. And these ships often looked like dragons. Here's the entry from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle from 793 on the first Viking raid on Lindisfarne, which is a holy island off the northeast coast of England. They wrote, Here were dreadful forewarnings come over the land of Northumbria and woefully terrified the people. These were amazing sheets of lightning and whirlwinds, and fiery dragons were seen flying in the sky. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. But I haven't heard how fast these yeah, things go. Yeah, it seems I've like heard about dancing it. around <laughs> yeah, here. doing the Viking dance. How fast were they going? Well, Bill told me that he's actually participated in a number of rowing experiments in recreated longships. And he said that they were able to go comfortably about 3.2 knots. So what's That's a knot? like less than 10 miles an hour, though, huh? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, the warships are mostly rowed because that's how they can, you know, get close to whoever they want to attack. Um, But they also had sails on board these ships, and they also had cargo ships. And I asked them how fast these boats could travel. And And it depends who you ask. So it seems like something like 10 to 12 knots is not not unbelievable under wind power. And some people believe that, you know, even 20, 20 plus knots is possible under the most ideal conditions. And then a a final anecdote. There was a Viking ship that sailed uh, across the Atlantic uh, some years ago, and the skipper is someone I have met. He told me that one day just conditions were just wonderful, so they all said, why not? Let's see how fast this ship really will go. And he said he got 30-plus knots according to the GPS, which is just unbelievable. Again, I I don't know what a knot is. (laughs) I can give you the, let me look, quickly look it up. I didn't write down the 30. I feel like we need a drum roll. That is 35 miles per hour. Uh, oh. It's still pretty, faster than a sperm dark, whale. Yeah. It would be it would be <laughs> scary to be on a, an, a boat going 35 miles an hour. If we're just talking about boats without regard to time period, then the fastest sailing record was set in 2012. Um, and that boat was going 65.45 knots, which is 75 miles per hour. Ooh, that's one of those newfangled that's a, fancy. That's a fancy boat. Is that hydrofoil? Yes. Mm. But the thing that I think is really cool and why I told you about Polynesians and Vikings is that they were sailing at speeds that are 
as fast, if not faster, than your average regular boat today. Yeah, they didn't have fiberglass in Polynesia. Exactly. Speaking of hydrofoils, I have another thing to add to the boat discussion. Can I can I add this? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's another kind of boat that I wanted to explore, which is the, the ice boat. <gasps> ice boats. Uh, well, I'm Bob Dill. live in Burlington, Vermont. And uh, I designed and built uh, two different ice boats. It's basically like a boat with ice blades on it. So there's three points of contact. Um, and it's... Two in the back, one in the front? Two in the front, one in the back. And mm. the back is the steering. Mm. And we had a conventional water boat, they're constrained by having to move the boat through the water. With an ice boat, the main constraint is the aerodynamic drag that's created by the boat. So making the boat go fast has a lot to do with making the aerodynamic drag as low as possible. Um, I actually have a picture. What's it look like? It just looks like a bunch of like ply or two by fours with a sail. And then on the bottom (laughs) of the two by fours are skates. Bob is an ice boater himself. Fairly early at the Getting into ice boating, I realized that there was a lot of folklore about how fast they'd gone. People say, oh, they go 100 miles an hour all the time. And it just didn't make sense. So I bought a radar gun and started going to regattas. And of course, nobody was going 100 miles an hour. People with the fastest boats were barely getting over 80, uh, which is still very fast. Don't get me wrong. So some of the fastest ice boats go like 80 miles an hour. Wow. In our first phone call, Bob Dill told me he spent 35 years trying to figure out this question of how fast ice boats could could have gone and how fast they can go now. Uh, so ice boats were first invented in Holland in the 1700s, the mid-1700s. What's it like to ride an ice boat, an antique ice boat? They're very exciting to ride in. They have a, an instability they call a flicker, which occasionally spins the boat. It often throws some of the passengers out of the boat at the same time. <laughs> How thrilling. Whee! How fast do you think those, those antique ice boats could have gone in the 17 and 1800s? I, I think the ice boats that were sailing back in the real early days of ice boating were probably sailing at 30 or 40 miles an hour when they were sailing in, the, in, in Holland, for example. Um, and I, I don't have a lot of data, but or I, there isn't a lot of data, just but looking at the configuration, how the boats were built... They weren't really designed for high speeds. By the early 1900s, late 1800s, they were probably doing 50, maybe 60 miles an hour. So this is the question. Do they, do they count that late in the game? Do we have ice boats at 50, 60 miles an hour? I think Nick's the referee here. Oh, gosh. I mean, what, what year? what's the year one more time? The, the sort of heyday of the Hudson Valley ice boat scene was 1870 to 1900 or so. I think ice boats kind of nudges into that modern yeah, era. Yeah. It's sort of like when when did we transition to this newer, more slippery, faster ice boat? And does that does that feel like the same thing as transitioning into the combustion engine era? It sort yeah. of does to me. Well, uh, another another wrinkle I will say, because I was curious about the timing of different things, is that the first the first quote unquote automobile that was used with a steam engine was invented in like. Um, the 1700s. Yeah, but those didn't go very fast. No, correct. But but that's the measure. So if right. we're arguing about if it's when things started going fast, um, the mid 1800s, I think, is legit because at that point, cars still sucked. They Did you terrible. know that the cars used to have to have a guy at the front waving a flag when they would drive down the road for real? Like there was a guy waving. Car here. Car yeah. coming through. <laughs> Warning. I'd yeah. just like to dwell for a second, though, on the fact that ice boats went, go 80 miles an hour, just like recreational ice boaters. It's terrifying. 
Okay, so we're going to have to take a quick break. We still have a few more theories to test when we come back. Skis, sleds, and slides when Outside In continues. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Okay, folks, welcome back to Outside In. Today, we are taking on Nick Capodice's friendly thought experiment. What was the fastest speed achieved by a human body before people started zipping around in cars and airplanes and what have you. There are two rules. You can't die, and falling doesn't count. Okay, Taylor, you're up. Um, so real quickly, before I get into what I think was a contender, but based off our conversation, maybe isn't, um, I'll just I'll just talk about skis for a second, because we mentioned it before. Um, and I knew that skis go way back. And this is crazy. Who would have known? Skis go further back than domesticated horses. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Okay, well, Sam wasn't surprised, but I was. (laughs) The earliest documented evidence of skiing goes back uh, 10,000 years. There's a cave painting in the Altai Mountains of China. Now, these are traditions that were passed down from generation to generation. They are now being lost to modernity. Uh, But Mongols and Kazakhs in this area have been, like I said, passing it down. Um, And this ancient method of skiing looks a little bit different. So instead of two poles. Uh, They have like one big pole. So they almost look like a Venetian gondolier. Yeah, yeah. So they use that sort of as a rudder and they lean way Way back back, on these long wooden skis um, that have animal hair uh, sort of on the bottom. So that way they can walk upwards if they're going uphill and then ski down. That's amazing. Yeah, because the animal (laughs) hair goes one way and it doesn't go the other. That's why they call that's why they call uh, the things you put on modern backcountry skis skins. Oh my you just skin up the hill on these like modern microfibers. This is delightful. Yeah. And and one of the things when I first started looking at this, which felt promising, is those cave paintings um, show them hunting ibex. So I'm thinking, all right, if they're hunting a fast animal, they must be going pretty quick. 
Um, luckily, I got to outsource pretty much all of the research here to National Geographic. They did a big story on this a few years back. Which is great. I recommend it to everybody. It's a good story. And they went out, they saw how the skis were crafted, and they went hunting with some of the people that are still doing this. I was always trying to just stay ahead of the curve somehow to do photography. Tried to get position, tried to get past them, tried to get to good angles. We found that we had quite a hard time keeping up with them. The thing is, is that you're right, Sam. They're going through really deep snow and they are moving. I would say, like, just visually, they might be going 20, 25 miles an hour, which is really fast considering these are, like, completely wild mountains. They're skiing in between trees. Um, but it doesn't seem capable of even coming close to some of the records we've talked about. Um, and in fact, the hunting of the ibex, the reason it works is because the ibex are in like chest deep snow and are barely moving and they surround them on the skis and then lasso them. Um, so, so I would say that we, we can pretty much uh, totally rule out skiing as an option. However, uh, I did start digging into ice like you, Justine, and that is when I came upon a very different story. Ooh. But, but I think around 1900, I always thought that the Cresta Riders were the, the fastest men on earth. Well, I'm Stephen Bartley, and I'm the honorary archivist for the St. Moritz Tobogganing Club. I don't know if you caught that. That is the St. Moritz Tobogganing Club. Tobogganing Club. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, ice skates, fast, uh, skis, you know, pretty fast, um, sledding. <laughs> who, who here thought sledding had a chance <laughs> I didn't of winning this contest? Sledding's for children. Sledding sounds like it's for children, but apparently there's there's races going back to the 15th century in Scandinavian countries. In the 1870s, there was a big technological change. It's not a huge shift, but they started making them steerable. And these are sort of like the little, I mean, it's like a little to- toboggan with a wooden top and, and metal runners, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Um, so... Uh, back in the 1870s, people were racing down the streets of this place uh, in Switzerland called St. Moritz. It's in the Alps, so it's got these like long, crazy streets. And people were like crashing into stuff and co- like literally causing disruption. Um, so they, they kind of gave them a place to do this, and they started deliberately icing this long chute. Um, it was kind of like a slide. This isn't sledding. This is the luge. Yes. So they had to shoot down this hill, and then you ended up going over the lake. And if you got up enough speed, you could go right across the lake, which is uh, probably about two-thirds of a mile across. But um, quite a few people got injured because they, they were sort of going so fast. And if they sort of got it slightly wrong, they'd sort of fall, you know, go over the side of the path before hitting the lake. And, um, yeah. Charles Darwin's son was nearly killed uh, doing that, apparently. And that's where the Darwin Awards came from. <laughs> <laughs> Not messing around. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, so I mean, obviously, people were going pretty fast and just, like, launching down this chute. At this point, this is just ice. Like, it's not super well-constructed or anything. Um, but in 1884 or 5, a handful of guys built something called the Cresta, which is pretty much at this point, the world's oldest well-documented ice track. And it is basically a much rougher version of what you would see at the Olympics for luge or bobsled or skeleton. It was all natural. Basically, it was a natural formation uh, combined with a footpath. And then in order to make the, the life a bit more interesting, they added a couple of major corners. It's about three quarters of a mile long. Uh, and it gets built from scratch every year. It's, it's not an artificial track. All they do is sculpt it from snow, and then pour buckets of water over it, and it freezes, and it turns into basically a loose track. Yeah. Um, that and, feels like pretty clearly within within these f- fuzzy rules. Yeah. From but, the technological standpoint. 
And the, the spirit, too, I feel like. How fast, though, Taylor? We didn't get a... Did I, do you have a number on this? Well, well. so um, this became an annual thing pretty much right away. Uh, and I should say that pretty much everybody doing this were, like, wealthy British folks who would vacation in St. Moritz and try their hand at the Cresta. Um, they started doing organized races. And then finally, in 1897, we have our first documented speed trial. And they actually used electric contacts placed a certain distance away at the fastest parts of the tracks so that they could see when they were hitting both of those contacts and then calculate the speed. And? Uh, in 1897, I think, is the first reference. A speed of 68 miles per hour was recorded. 68? Wow. Oh. 1900. Speed of 73 miles per hour was recorded. Oh, wow. And and so here is what I submit to you is that I have in my hands actual notes and documentation of hitting the 73 miles per hour. It's hard to read because it's like old school, it's like super cursive. I think they should have a name for this kind of writing. But but so so th- this is this is really interesting because this is the first time they've recorded the speed. Correct. But they could have been going that fast for a while. They. <laughs> They could have, although to the point that Erica made earlier about the fact that we have all this technology, but for the most part, we don't go that much faster. What's crazy is that the record today, you know, over 100 years later, is 82 miles per hour. Hmm. Um, and that is held by an Irish skeleton racer who's been in the Olympics. His name is Lord Clifton Rotsley. Still oh, just Lord. still just fancy British folks doing this sport. <laughs> They're the worst. They... they <laughs> They banned women from 1923 until this year. What? Of course they did. And the reason that they gave is because uh, there is a chance that women riding chest down would have a higher chance of developing breast cancer. Oh, my God. Breast cancer? They did have one, one, one day a year. It was, was Ladies' Day. I hate them. <laughs> I was so excited to root for the tobogganers of St. Moritz. So when I hit this 73 miles per hour number, I was pretty confident that the speed was good. Um, but again, I wasn't sure if it would pass the, the the sort of time muster. Once you have electric contacts that you're hitting with the blades of your runners, that does feel like we've hit a technological point where we're like, this doesn't really feel like it anymore. But But if they were doing that for, you know, a couple decades before they just figured out how to measure the speed... Yeah, yeah, I could go for it. Well, and and I took this as an indication of how fast one can go on a on a icy track down a steep hill on something with metal runners, right? Uh, and and interestingly enough, I did find this other fascinating older example, which is that um, do I do any of you know where the roller coaster comes from? No, I thought some guy invented it. So uh, so the precursor just was that. A- <laughs> Slow burn. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was good. Okay. So the precursor to the roller coaster um, was something that uh, translates uh, in English into Russian mountain. Catherine the Great, uh, during the mid-1700s, basically in Russia at this point, they used to build these massive towers, huge ice slides, and then people would go down them. And the stories that people told from those are pretty similar in, in, in terms of people just like whizzing for a half mile once they hit wow. the bottom of these curves. Um they, they, uh, there was one that I read, I think, was 200 feet tall, this tower, that went down an ice slide. 
later, Catherine the Great actually was like, hey, we should do this during the summertime and threw wheels on it and it became the first roller coaster. The, That's the, why she's great. <laughs> <laughs> the Spanish word for roller coaster is montaña rusa and I've never known why. Russian mountain. Yeah. So due to acceleration from gravity, uh, to get over 55 miles an hour is about a 104 foot free fall. So, so with the friction and with the slight angle, it's possible to a 200 foot roller coaster would get you over 55. That's what I'm going with right now. Hey, we're de- we're debating the final, and I haven't given my final. The rope swing, quintessential human experience, right? Yeah, I think the rope swing's been around a long time. Ready? That is a great feeling, which is not limited to any time or place. I would say the human heart sings when you're on a swing and then you release and you drop into the water. This is John Oxendorf. He is a professor of architecture and engineering at MIT. He studies the mechanical strength of ancient building techniques. Cool job. (laughs) My question, so we know that swings are a thing, right? We have images of swings going all the way back to ancient Greece. Like people have figured out how to swing on things. The question then is, would it be possible to construct a swing big enough to go faster than our benchmarks that we've that we've been setting here? So let's just say the horse, 55 miles an hour. Um, so I called up John because he has studied Peruvian rope bridges. Ooh, I like where this is going. The longest one that I have found exists in a remote region of Peru today, and it's 150 feet or about 50 meters. And by comparison, the longest free span achieved uh, by Roman engineers in ancient Rome is uh, about 100 feet. Up until 150 feet, they were able to build ropes strong enough to cross a canyon. And these were also strong enough to carry horses and cannons when the Spanish arrived in the high Andes Mountains in 1532. Objectively cool, (laughs) that is. Yeah. Very cool. Um, So 150-foot span, easily they were able to build these ropes. There's still one Peruvian rope bridge today that is being rebuilt every single year by by the two villages on either side. They come together, they weave them together. uh, You know, they're made of grass. Uh, The whole village comes together. They make these giant sort of cables and one bridge consists of six of them um, and then they weave in between them with smaller with smaller fibers. Um, John has taken one of these grass ropes, tested it to failure, and it can hold about two tons so it could lift a car. Oh my god. Wow. Wow. Grass, grass ropes, two tons. Um, so clearly you could build a big enough rope to make a pretty big swing. Um, so then, uh, you know, from there... I took this to a uh, pendulum calculator, which you can easily find online, to figure out how high you would have to, what angle you'd have to jump from and how high you'd have to jump from on your 150-foot-long rope in order to get above 55 miles an hour. Thoughts, guesses? Uh, wow, 150 feet, right? Yeah. This is the length. So a 90-degree angle would be level with the point that you're swinging from. Right. I'm just picturing people doing this like thousands of years ago, just like, hey, what are you guys doing on Sunday? Yeah, a bunch of us are going up to the dome. (laughs) Well, so so I won't make you speculate anymore. To get uh, on a 150-foot rope, to get a swing that goes faster than 55 miles an hour, you'd have to be at a 75-degree angle, 111 feet up. That is a huge yeah. jump. It's a, it's massive. That's like that's like you stand at the top and you're like, nope, I'm not going to do that because I would die. But you would you have to? How would you erect this swing? Because you would have to have already been over to the other side. 
there'd have to be something in like the middle. Yeah. I don't even know. And I don't you even would, know. You could like slam into the side of the mountain if you got it wrong. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I think the survivability thing. I don't believe it. Yeah, I think I think it is theoretically possible, uh, and I but I think that there's no evidence that a swing this big existed, probably because one did not exist. Well, let's let's go through them. So it's the sperm whale. is the lowest six to ten miles an hour although i think probably they did go 25 miles an hour Yeah, me too then it's the viking rowers around either 14 or 30 yep and then what comes after that horses horses are 55 55 at max 50 on a good day yeah yeah let's say that fin whale also potentially Around just 50. above horses, I think. <laughs> just notching in right above the ancient horses. I would get, I would say that notching in just below. And then after that, I think this is where we'd stick the less dangerous version of Sam's hypothetical swing. Gotcha. So then after that, ice boating. Depending on the era, though, ice boating was either thirty-ish or sixty miles an hour. And then we have luges. If we count it. I, I, the misogynist tobacers of St. Mark. I feel so sad about it. I don't. I feel like it, there's there's a little bit of a like it's, it's like when the Olympics went from amateur to professional. Mm. I feel like I, in my heart, I don't like it. What's the one you like in your heart? Is it ice boats? Not I like ice, ice boats. boats. I don't think because they they too feel a little bit more modern. I think my big takeaway is. People were able to go really fast, <laughs> like much faster than I expected them to be able to go on the reg. Nick, uh, do you have any other questions for us? To, I'm, to I, was, I would like with? to thank you all. I'd like to thank everyone and like a sort of entreaty to, to whenever possible to not Google things so you can yeah. figure these things out. <laughs> and if next time, if you could tackle my uh, what came first, bread or stairs. That's for next time on Outside In. <laughs> we expect emails. <laughs> awesome. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, Nick Cabadice, and our executive producer, Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray is the director of waving checkered flags in front of antique cars. Chances are that we forgot about some wild ways that pre-engine humans hit high speeds, so email your ideas for this thought experiment to outsideinpod.com at nhpr.org. Bonus points if you have specific stories or documented records, and if we get enough of them, we might just do this again. Also, feel free to call in your ideas or critiques to the Ask Sam hotline at 1-844-GO-OTTER. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Basically, if you think of a medieval catapult, 
but instead of launching from a bucket at the end of the catapult, there's a rope attached to the end of it, and it... What? You can't compare it to a catapult. Why not? Everybody because, knows what a catapult is. <laughs> because the internet will will eviscerate you. Nick, it, I think you should describe what a trebuchet is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you want the best possible way to fling a stone with using a 90-kilogram counterweight is a, definitely a trebuchet. Is <laughs> <laughs> an internet joke. Reply all can explain it to you. Okay. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.